Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer, and then I want you to turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, and I want us to look at what God thinks of His Son. Let's pray together. Father, in the strong name of Jesus Christ, I bind every demon of hell, I bind every evil spirit that curses the name of Jesus, that denies the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, by the authority of the Word and by the authority of the blood of the Lamb, I rebuke the enemy. And I ask you, Father, by your Holy Spirit to have free reign and absolute power and authority in this service. Father, may the Word of God be so penetrating that my voice will not be heard but that the Word would speak to the heart and it would ring in the hearts of those who do not know you as personal Lord and Savior. Lord, may it challenge us and wake us up and rock our boat if we are not in line and in tune with you as believers. Father, we have come dressed in our best today, but Father, you came dressed in the form of a man, laying aside your glory so that we could see what God was like. You were dressed in humiliation so that ultimately you could know exaltation. Father, we honor your Son. We agree with you that his name is above every name today. And at the name of Jesus, we submit this time, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever been around a grandparent... How many of you are grandparents? How many of you have a picture of your grandkids in your wallet? How many of you would show them to me right now? No, I no, really. <laughs> Hands all over the place. You know, I have never seen anybody that was embarrassed to show pictures of their kids. I mean, ugly kids. We're talking about kids that, that, that ugly. I mean, ugly. You know, and especially those newborn pictures. You know, when their face looks just all flattened out and everything. Look, this is my grandkid. Looks just like me. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> Boy, he looks just like you. I mean, we love to show off our kids. We love to talk about them. You never hear anybody say, how many kids you got? I really don't like to talk about that. Now, when the food bill comes in, you may not want to talk about it. But, but I mean, people like to talk about their children. We love to show off pictures of our kids. Well, God loves to show off His Son. He loves to show the picture of His Son. The picture of His Son is found in this book, the Word of God. You don't have to go outside of this book to find out what His Son is like. You don't have to go outside this book to find out what God is like. God has already revealed Himself, and He revealed Himself through His Son, who came in the form of a man, and the God-man walked the face of the earth, sinless for 33 years, so that you and I could have redemption and forgiveness of our sins so we could be bought back out of the slave house of sin. You and I can have freedom. Why? Because God showed off His Son. I want you to look again at that passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 that Brother Tony read a few moments ago. For I want you to see what God thinks of His Son. Now, while you're turning to that passage of Scripture, I want to read you a little quote out of U.S. News and World Report, this week's issue entitled, The Last Days of Jesus, The New Light on What Happened. Listen to these words. Some scholars have come to reject the passion as pure fiction. 
For others, the account remains a story worthy of faith. Still others believe the gospel narratives are a mix of legend and fact. Some theologians have sought to reconcile the resurrection with a more rationalistic view by describing it as a metaphor appropriated by early Christians who thought mythically and from whom a resurrection of their fallen leader had occurred in their hearts and minds. It is a denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by some so-called theologians. Well, friend, all they got to do is just buy a plane ticket and go to Jerusalem and try to find his body. Nobody knows where it is. Even skeptics and agnostics don't know where it is. Now, you can go find the body of Mohammed. You can go find the body of Buddha. You can go find the grave of every religious leader that has ever walked the face of this earth. But one, you can't find the body of Jesus Christ. He's not there. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. His body is gone from that grave. It is an empty tomb, and you can walk in and see that there once was a body there, but there's no body there now. There's nothing there but empty space. He is resurrected from the grave. God thought enough of his son that when his son had finished his ministry and his mission, God said, I'm going to resurrect him and show the world what I think about him. It's an interesting thing about the Lord. He's the only one. Old people cry for allegiance and dictators cry for allegiance and to be treated like uh, they are divine and there are religious leaders that want to be worshipped, but there's only one Lord. There are 750 who's who's in America. 450 Hall of Fame. I mean, if you're just about born and breathing, you can be in who's who or be in a Hall of Fame for somebody. But there's only one Lord, and there's only one person in the Hall of Fame, and there's only one who's who in heaven. You say, boy, I can't wait to get, to, uh, wait to get there and just meet Paul and, and meet the disciples. Friend, when you get there and you see Jesus, you're going to forget Paul ever existed. <laughs> when you get there and you see Jesus, it's not going to be your loved ones you're going to be looking for. You're going to be looking for the one that loved you before you loved him. That's the one you're going to be looking for, and he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. God exalted his son so that you and I could come today and worship him and honor him and adore him and sing praises to him. It makes a difference in our life because of what God thinks of his son. God has a very high opinion of his son. He has the utmost opinion of his son. And God has never left with mankind the final decision in any matter. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says, This Jesus, whom you crucified... God has made him both Christ and Lord. Now you see, man sized Jesus up. He's just a good moral teacher. He was just a prophet. He was just a, a charismatic religious leader. In fact, the Jewish Talmud says that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier and he was executed because he led Israel astray. That was man's evaluation. And so they took him and tried him in a mock trial that in any court of law would have been thrown out at least 20 different times. They found no charges against him, but they had to get rid of him because they didn't know what to do with him. And so they crucified him and nailed him to the cross. And they said, that's it, that settles it, it's over. But it wasn't over. This Jesus whom you crucified, that was man's decision. God's decision was, this Jesus whom I have exalted and resurrected from the grave. That's God's final decision. He has made him Lord. He has made him boss. God never leaves with man the final decision. You and I have all, if you're a believer, you've met people say, well, i tell you one thing. I don't have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. You've already made it. 
I've got all the time in the world. God may overrule that. God has a supreme court in heaven. In the throne room of God, there is a supreme court that has a habit of overruling man's decisions. Men say he's just a moral teacher. He's just a good man. He's a great prophet. We ought to follow his teachings. You've been overruled. You say, well, I think there are a lot of ways to get to heaven. You've been overruled. Your opinion's been overruled. Your opinion doesn't mean anything. God has said, this Jesus, whom you crucified, not who the Jews crucified, whom you crucified. Those of you that live right here in southwest Georgia, you crucified him. Your sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross. We crucified the Son of God because our sin put him there, and yet God has made him both Christ and Lord. It is the tragedy of human experience that man has somehow found a way to leave God out of his decision-making. Oh, we honor God on Easter and at Christmas, and we tokenize with a manger scene and maybe with a few crosses around, and, and we dress up and we do all these things, but for the most part, men and women leave God out of their decision-making. They size up life, they make their decisions, they determine their circumstances, they make all their opinions around the fact that God's not involved in any of it. I want you to see what God says about his son. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is equal to the Father. Look at verse 6, if you would. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That little word form means the outward expression of what a person essentially is. Although he was the outward expression of God, that word form would read, he did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not regard it as a, an excuse for self-assertion. Jesus didn't say, now, Father, I don't need to do this. I'm, a, I'm equal to you. He found it as a way to lay it aside for self-sacrifice. And he took on him the form, the essential outward expression of a bondservant. Now Paul is not writing a theological treatise here. He is not writing a doctrinal statement, but he's dealing with the Lord of all doctrine. And he is writing what has been called by many one of the first Christian hymns to talk about the birth, death, resurrection, glorification of Jesus Christ. Here we have the fact that Jesus is equal to God. A.H. Strong said, Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes, and he humbled himself. He brought himself low. That was his attitude. He didn't walk around the earth and strut. He came as a servant. He came to meet the needs of men and to show men the way to the Father and to open the doors and say, Whosoever will may come. He came to say, God so loved you that he gave me so that you might never die. He came that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. He is equal to the Father. He laid the divine attributes aside, his glory, not the nature of God. He laid his glory aside and came down as the God-man so that you and I could know how to experience a relationship with the Lord. He humbled himself to the point of death, to the point of death. Now that very simply means this, Jesus determined when he would die. You say, well, no, he was out of control, see, because when Jesus, Judas came into the garden and he kissed him, he lost control of his life. No. He said, 
No man, no man can take my life from me unless I lay it down. No man. You see, when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and when he said, it is finished, he had completed what he had come to earth to do to fulfill the Father's will, to provide a plan for man. He came to do it, and he said, that's it, it's over, I'm dying, and he died. Now, you and I, when we die, if you were to end up in CCU or ICU, and you were to be in a process, your body's life would be ebbing away from you, you would fight for every breath. You would grasp for life. Your body fights and holds on for all it can to life. Not Jesus. Jesus said, I'm through. I can die. I have finished my work. I can go to be with the Father. I have done what I was sent to do. My time has been fulfilled, and it is finished, and I can now lay down my life. The cross was not an instrument of pleasure. It is still considered by most the worst form of capital punishment that has ever been created by man. In fact, a polite Roman would not even utter the word cross because it was a vulgarity. It was a four-letter word. The cross, we have made it so pretty and we wear it around our necks and we wear it on earrings and we put it on the front of our Bibles and it's this nice little smooth piece of veneered wood and, and the nails are little bitty small nails. My friends, listen, God paid a terrible price on that cross. It's not a pretty thing unless you've been washed by the blood that was spilt on it. The cross, God's method of salvation, there was no other way. It was not what Jesus had to submit to because his plans had gone bad. It was not something that came up that wasn't on his agenda. It was in the pre-plan of God that there be a cross on Calvary. In fact, he had the cross planned before he had the garden planned. Now you say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's because you see it from this side. In the councils of eternity, there was a cross on Calvary before there was ever a garden in Eden. Before Eve ever ate us out of house and home, friend, there was already a cross planned in the mind and heart of God. He is equal to the Father. Secondly, God has exalted Jesus. Therefore, also, God has highly exalted him. That could be hyper-exalted, super-exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That word exalted means to raise to the highest position of power and to the most extreme majesty possible. God has exalted his son. And it is an emphatic word in the Greek. It means that he has done it and it is over, it is settled, and there's no debate. Nobody will ever take his throne. There's no discussion, there's no debate. It's a dead issue as far as God is concerned. He has exalted him to the highest position. He has the utmost power. He has the utmost authority. He has the utmost majesty. God has exalted Jesus. Why did he exalt him? Because of what he did in verses 6 through 8. Because he humbled himself. Because he had the attitude which was in Christ Jesus, and he humbled himself, and therefore, because he humbled himself, God exalted him. The reward for humiliation was exaltation. Listen, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Let me tell you something, friend. When Jesus Christ died and rose and was exalted by the Father, in that very act... He defeated everything that could ever defeat you. If you are defeated today, if you are disturbed today, 
If you've got a problem today, it's because you've not been to the cross of Jesus. Because in the cross, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. Everything that man ever feared, everything that man ever stood in fear of, God defeated it when he died on the cross in the form of his son, Jesus. There's a play called The Trial of Jesus, and in it, Pilate's wife goes to the centurion, and she says, so you think he's dead? The centurion says, no, ma'am, I don't. She says, well, where is he then? And the centurion says, he is let loose in all the world where none can stop his truth. It says he has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. The name, not a name, the name. It is the name Lord. The name Lord. God has given his son the name Lord. The Old Testament, it was Yahweh. In the New Testament, it is Lord. He has given him a name of royalty and dignity and majesty. Now all the other names of Jesus Christ give you a picture of part of what he is. Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, all of those names, the Rose of Sharon, they give you a little piece of the puzzle of who Jesus is. But when you put all of those pieces together, you'll find that in those pieces of the puzzle, there is the name Lord. Lord. It's given him the name. The only name that can explain him. The only name that you can fully understand him by. You see, in the scripture, 24 times the word Savior is used. 432 times the word Lord is used. Three times it says he is Lord of Lords. That means he's Lord of everybody. In case I missed anybody, he's Lord of everybody. Three times, Lord of Lords. And ladies and gentlemen, you cannot come to Jesus unless you understand that he demands of you that he be your Lord. You cannot come to Jesus and just shake a hand of a preacher and walk through baptistry waters and get dunked and attend church and give you tithe and come to Sunday school and get saved. That won't do it. It's not coming down and taking a preacher's hands. It's not agreeing to the facts about Jesus. It's not making a nodding agreement to some theological thesis that you heard. When you and I come to Jesus, we come under one premise, and that is he is going to be Lord, boss, master of our lives. There is no other way to be saved. He's not given us another way to be saved. It is under the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. And we make it convenient for people when we say, oh, just come to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You look in the Bible, it never says Savior and Lord. It always says Lord and Savior. Always says Lord and Savior. His name is Lord. C.S. Lewis, who was an agnostic, said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool, spit at him, kill him, or fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. Jesus never said, I came to be a great teacher. All through scriptures, you read the gospels and as you read the epistles, all through scripture you find he came for one purpose, to die for men's sin. That's why he came. 
Now, it's interesting as you read this article in U.S. News and if you read other articles and if you read some people who call themselves, themselves theologians, when you read that kind of stuff, it's always interesting that up until the 18th century, there was never any real denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not on a major scale. But we got smart, and we started denying the resurrection. Well, I tell you, folks, if I were going to believe something, I'd believe somebody who was there when the accident happened, not somebody who heard about it fifth hand. You know, I'm going to take the eyewitnesses, Matthew and Luke and John, Mark, who was writing for Peter, I'm going to take Paul, who saw the resurrected Christ on the Emmaus Road. I'm going to take those men. I'm going to take them and their testimony and their word, and I'm going to say, well, they must know more than I do. They were there. You see, it is foolish for you to walk out of this place today and say, well, I read a book in the bookstore the other day that said that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. When was that book printed? If it wasn't printed about 30 years into A.D., you might ought to cast that book aside because that book is sending you to hell because it's trying to tell you that what God said in His Word is not true. And my friends, I'm going to go with the book that was written closest to the time of Christ because it tells me that He exalted Him and has given Him the name. Not only has He exalted Him, not only is He equal to Him, but thirdly, God has empowered Him. Verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's what God did. God responded to His Son in three ways. In verse 9, He gave Him a name. Gave Him a name. You named your kid. Some of you named your kids some names that when they grew up, they didn't like you for it anymore. I mean, I don't like my middle name. I wish my mom hadn't used that for my middle name, and it's none of your business what it is. I mean, you know, parents, they, they name kids some things and they don't think what it's going to be like to call those kids that when they're 35 years old. You know, and the guy's walking around, my name is, and they just, God looked at his son and he gave him a name he'd never be ashamed of. Lord. Why? Because of humility and exaltation. God gave him the name Lord. He gave him a name. That's the first thing God did for his son. The second thing he did for him is he's going to make him the object of universal praise. If you look at that verse, verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, the angels, the archangels, the redeemed saints, those that have gone before us, I tell you what they're doing. They're acknowledging him as Lord. They're doing it joyfully. They are rejoicing. Christ has won the victory. The grave is empty. Death has been defeated. They are rejoicing that God has won. We're just down here mopping up right now until he comes back. They're rejoicing because they know the end. They've seen, they've read the last chapter of the book. Then those on earth, those that are here, and then those under the earth. That means that those angels that fell in Lucifer's rebellion in heaven, that tried to take over the throne of God, 
That means that every demon of hell, every source of darkness, that means that every person who ever gets anybody involved in anything that's satanic and ungodly, that means there's going to come a day when every Satan worshiper, every demon of hell, every lost person, every agnostic, every atheist, every blasphemous tongue will be driven to their knees and they're going to have to say, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He's Lord. Now, my friend, you've got a choice. You can do that in this life and do it rejoicingly, or you'll have to do it in another life. You won't have an option. You say, well, that's your opinion. No, that's God's opinion. I'm not telling you what I'm saying. That's what God says. And you say, well, I don't, well, don't want to do that. Well, you don't have the last word. You see, once you breathe your last, you've lost your ability to make any more decisions. You don't have the last word. God has the last word, and the final decision is in His hands. The ball's out of your court except that you come in repentance to Jesus Christ and acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you accept the grace and love of God and that you realize that He can take your sins and wash them as white as snow. That's what God will do for you today if you'll let Him because God has empowered Him with a name that will save you. You're not going to get saved in the name of Buddha or Mohammed or Joseph Smith or any other person that ever walked on the face of the earth with tainted blood you're going to get saved with the blood of one man. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only blood that can save you. You say, well, it, blood's gory. I don't like to talk about that. And I, I really think there... I know some people that are they out there, and they got these other books along with the, other, with the Bible, and they kind of lay them along beside it. And, and they seem to be good moral people, and they seem to be nice people. Surely God wouldn't send them to hell. That's exactly right. God doesn't send them to hell. They send themselves to hell. Because they reject the final word of God. The finality of the Word of God is rejected because they say, well, I just think there ought to be some other options for people. Folks, God is dogmatic and narrow. He is dogmatic and narrow. God doesn't give us any other options. God says that there is only one name by which men can be saved. Now, you and I need to understand that there is a necessity for us to be dogmatic about salvation. We don't need to go to people and say, well, you just believe whatever you want to, and we're all going to end up in the same place. Friend, you just lied to that person. Now, if that is not true, then this book is a book full of lies. There's not, there are not many ways to get into heaven. There is a narrow way. There is a narrow gate. But there are a lot of people taking a broad road. I've talked to people, and the death of their loved ones, and bless their hearts, you want to try to help them. But they sit there and say, oh, well, I tell you, he was a good man. He is a moral man. He is a good man. And I know God must have loved him enough. Friends, I'm sorry to tell you this. I hate to be the one to break the news. If you hadn't read the Bible yet, let me be the one to tell you he's in hell. He's in hell. Not because God didn't love him, because he rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. I want to tell you, we as Christians have done the lost community a massive disservice by helping them to believe that everybody somehow is going to get there. And I want to tell you, in surveying Baptists and just talking to Baptists, I kind of do these little individual surveys sometimes, and I talk, in talking to Baptists, most Baptists believe that there's a lot of people going to be in heaven that are not going to be there. They just kind of believe everybody's going to kind of get there. I'm not saying you've got to be a Baptist to be saved. I'm saying you've got to believe in the blood of Jesus alone to save you. 
Not in water, not in church membership, not in anything. You add anything to the blood of Jesus, friend, and you've put yourself as part of your form of salvation. You've helped save yourself, and you can't save yourself. You say, boy, you sure are being dogmatic about all this. I mean, give us a break. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, if I go to a doctor and uh, I've got something wrong with me, I don't want him to say, well, it could be a little bit of this or it could be a little bit of that or we think it could be this or, hey, I don't know, let's just get the medical journal and let's just ask God to show us what it is. Let's just open it up and point at the first thing on the page and see what you got. You don't want to go to a doctor like that. There's a word for doctors like that, quacks. I mean, you want to go to a doctor and you say, well, here's what you got to do. Here's the medicine you got to take. Here's the schedule you got to do. They always say you got to change your diet. They always got to run a few more tests. They always got to do it. But they, you want a guy to do that. You want a guy to check you out. I mean, you're not paying him and you're not paying insurance for the guy to say, well, it, I don't know what it could be. I don't, you know, call a plumber. See if he knows what's wrong with you. <laughs> you don't go see a surgeon and you kind of want to ask him, how'd you do in biology? And you want to know, you want a guy that's dogmatic who says, this is your problem, this is how you get well. Well, you take that prescription that nobody can read and nobody can understand it, it's just a bunch of scribble, and you take it to a pharmacist and he walks over and he says, well, let's see now, got a lot of folks in here with green. Okay, you got on green, let's get a green bottle. Let's see what we got up here in green. Because uh, that looks good, that match kind of what you got on. Uh, oh, you want something cheaper than what the doctor would recommend? Well, let's see, this is... This over here doesn't cost much. You want this right here? Oh, he prescribed pills, but hey, this lady doesn't like to swallow pills. We'll just give her liquids. No, you want a pharmacist to be dogmatic. You want him to dogmatically fill that prescription exactly the way that it is supposed to be filled. You get out of here on this little treetop airlines that flies out of Albany, and you get on that plane, you don't want the guy to say, well, welcome aboard. Glad to have you. We're just going to get it out here, and when it kind of feels right, I'm going to pull the wheels off the ground. Now, y'all pray because I hope we clear the tree line. You don't want him to get up there and say, well, you know, I tell you what, I never did like all that instrument rating. That's kind of for the birds, so I'm just going to kind of feel my way through this thing. We're just going to kind of fly around, and, and hey, you know, don't worry, folks. I think I know where Atlanta is. I think I can get us there, and I'm pretty sure we've got enough fuel to get us there. I mean, you want a dogmatic pilot. You want a dogmatic doctor. You want a dogmatic pharmacist. You want people who are sure about what they believe and what they're doing. And yet, folks come to church and somehow want the preacher to say, well, it could be a little bit of this, it could be a little bit of that. I think it could be this, but I'm not real sure. So let's just kind of throw it up and have beef stew for the gospel. No. You've got to have the body and blood of Jesus for the gospel. And that's all. In a cathedral in West Germany, there is this saying, You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me Lord and obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. The old hymn says it best. 
All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.